millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia. Because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tipping no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Yeah, Taste of democracy. Very good. <laughs> Welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University's Australian Studies Institute. And this week is Reconciliation Week. So I'm delighted to have in the studio a terrific panel to discuss where we are and I guess regrettably where we are not. Dr. Virginia Marshall is the inaugural Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow at ANU, as well as being a World Economic Forum Water Expert member. Virginia, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thank you. Mandangu. Peter Swanton is an astrophysicist and likely to be a postgraduate candidate in some respect uh, in, in the future. Peter, welcome to you. Awesome. Thank you. And Talia King is a final year psychology student at ANU. Talia, welcome. Now, I met both Peter and Talia at the launch last week of the ANU's Reconciliation Action Plan, where both spoke movingly about their experiences and perspectives. But before that, Virginia, can I start by asking you about the notion of reconciliation itself? You know, as I say, Reconciliation Week, uh, we talk a lot about reconciliation in this country. Is it the right term to use? Is it the right aspiration to have? Because I've 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 seen some commentary from a number of people, particularly Aboriginal people, questioning whether reconciliation is the right word. I heard a, a, a fantastic interview on Radio National on Saturday morning with a young Indigenous lawyer. Uh, she was making the point that. Um, you know, someone who's the victim of a crime isn't shouldn't be asked to reconcile with the uh, the perpetrator of that crime, for example. Uh, why is it that uh, we we only have that as an aspiration? I just asked after your perspective on that. Yeah, well, as a practicing lawyer, I probably wouldn't put it that way because I don't think you're going to achieve really um, fruitful 
uh, conversations. You if, wouldn't put it which way, so In the way of, of a crime. I wouldn't see that analogy. Right. Uh, I, I don't think that's very useful. Even though there are many, many crimes at the I heart. I haven't finished yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the whole issue is that reconciliation, this is what most of our mob are saying, is that we can't reconcile with the past and the present. It's not just 200 years ago, 233 years ago. Um, we're actually saying without truth-telling, we can't reconcile. Mm. And that's the big issue. Like, Truth-telling is really important because every country town in Australia, no matter where you look, has a dark history. It has massacres. It's pushed people to the fringes of their communities. It's actually remapped the communities and taken land, um, whether it's through legal means like settlement grants or land grants uh, or, or any other form. It means that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been moved from homelands. And that's uh, a very serious issue because it also means that it involves a losing inheritance. Um, it's uh, for families. If we go to, you know, the, the bottom line system for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families is that um, we haven't had that support from government. Um, we've been moved basically from pillar to pillar uh, just to try and uh, – move us out of the equation. Uh, and I think that's why truth-telling is really important. And this is where we talk about voice, treaty, and truth. Mm. So if we don't have that, then reconciliation as a movement and as a movement that will establish um, a whole new relationship, so resetting that relationship won't happen. So voice, treaty, truth, uh, but we keep falling over at the first hurdle, really, because we don't get to that we have disagreement over that whole notion of voice, really, don't we? I mean, there are there are some internal disagreements, I guess, around that. But but more importantly, we saw the the sort of mainstream political reaction to the Uluru Statement from the Heart in 2017. It was quite summary. It was quite quick. You know, there was the third chamber claim. There was the limited franchise claim. Uh, I've spoken to Malcolm Turnbull on this podcast actually about this, and it, it's it's something that. You know, he was prime minister at the time, and and yet maintains um, his his uh, his position at that from from that time. Well, he didn't support treaty. He didn't support treaty, and I remember that very clearly from the conversations. Watching seven thirty report, for mm. example, um, he wasn't supportive. He had the opportunity to be, but it wasn't popular within mm. his party. Yeah, and I think that's the problem. We have to get out of this uh, political party alliance. But he hasn't even changed his position since then, which is exactly. interesting. Yeah, and that's what I'm getting at. Mm. That most people, unlike Malcolm Fraser, who you know resigned from the Liberal Party and became a, an incredible supporter of human rights right to the end. So I think that that epiphany that Malcolm had, um, many other politicians haven't had. That and Malcolm I, Fraser had. Exactly. Yes, yes. So I think that that's really important, that if if we look at this um, truth-telling as not something that we're losing, Australia's gaining. We need to, like every relationship, if you're going to reset uh, a marriage, for example, and there's issues, you have to reset it from the beginning and you have to have honesty. And I think for our young people in the room, we really have to have that very soon. Would either of you like to to uh, comment on that, uh, Peter? For example, the the question of of that honest truth telling process to begin with it seems it seems common sense, doesn't it? You know, fundamental really. If you're not prepared to have a a dialogue about the history, how can you have any sort of realistic aspiration for 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 the present and the future? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like, I guess it, it is integral to, to sort of tell those truths, but they're not easy truths to tell. It's, it's really, you know, Australia having to put a mirror up in front of itself and actually, mm. and have those conversations and it's not going to be an easy process. And I think that's the biggest hurdle that it's at at the moment is that they are very uncomfortable conversations to have to have. Tell you they're more uncomfortable for some than others, though. There are there are many Australians, uh, white Australians, I guess we call them for the purposes of this conversation, who support the idea of the voice, who support the idea of genuine progress here, and who are prepared to embrace that. And there are others that don't. What, in your view, is the um, is the barrier here? I, I'm, I suppose I'm not asking you as a psychologist, but if, if mm. that influences your your uh, understanding of of this, that's that's fine as well. But is it that we have a as a nation we have a myth about ourselves uh, being egalitarian and the, the the nation of the fair go and 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 mm. and being sort of anti authoritarian, you know, larrikins, all these sort of uh, you know admirable traits, and this invites us to confront a truth that overturns a lot of that. Yeah, um, I think coming from. Uh, a psychological perspective, I learn a lot about um, procedural and distributive justice and you, in, the, in those sort of conversations, trust and respect is really the ultimate key to be able to have those conversations and to be able to recategorize your identity to, to f- away from different subgroups and to the us versus them to bring it together to a we and how we move together. Um, so really, yeah, trust and respect are really integral in, in truth-telling and being able to actually come to the table. Virginia, what do you, what do you think about that, that proposition that Australia is, is kind of trapped uh, in its own, within its own kind of myth-making uh, in modern Australia uh, and therefore is, you know, some there's just this sort of psychological reluctance, if I can put it in a collective sense, a collective psychological reluctance to acknowledge that in fact, well, this this is a you know, this is a wall, the foundations of which are um are crook. Well I think Talia's really thought about this very carefully and I think one thing that um, she's mentioned is respect, which is Yinjamara in Wiradjuri language. So I think that's the the bottom line. I don't think it is something that Australians can say, look, we're not really comfortable with this anymore. We're not going to go ahead with these discussions if it means that we have to really participate in the truth-telling. I think you have to look to Canada and also to New Zealand, South Africa, many other countries that have had truth-telling, and it's been actually really beneficial. Mm. Um, Recently on the news there was a, a, a very serious issue in Kamloops in Canada, B.C., um, that they found over 200 graves of children yes. within the residential school. And I, I won't use school in any way that, or shape or form of education, but in a, other words, it was used for assimilation. It was used for torture and mm. abuse. Now, we've had exactly the same situation in Australia. We've had schools like that, Moore River Settlement, Cootamundra Girls Home, Kinchula Boys Home, and many, many, many others um, that under religious uh, institutions that are real really uh, active today. And that Canadian one's a Catholic Church-related one. It is, it is. And there were a lot of court cases um, many years ago establishing the rights. Catherine Mills, for example, um, that was one of the important cases of its time. So, you know, even though we're hearing those um, shocking 
uh, events. We have those shocking events here. And I think that that's what we've got to remember. We have to be open. We've, we've had so many royal commissions over the last few years on child abuse, whether it's orphans, non-Indigenous people coming to Australia and then being abused and working on farms. We've also had sexual abuse. Um, Grace Tame has really uh, highlighted the issue of sexual violence against women and in every shape and form going to our very um, esteemed major institution in Australia, which is the parliament. You know, so if that's rotten, Mm. you know, we've got some, you know, some work ahead of us. So that's what I think I, sh- I would take out from that. So Yinjamara also starts in, a, in a, a situation where all people really want to lay down arms and really advance. That's what we've got to do. So the only way forward is to look back first, to look back Absolutely. honestly, yep. to have a proper accounting of it and to work, work that out. Now, I mean, the, the sort of gold standard in, in this area because of how dramatic it was in terms of a compressed time frame, the gravity of the situation was, was South Africa and uh, Nelson Mandela. Um, he was quoted by Peter Yu uh, uh, the other day um, at, uh, at the uh, aforementioned uh, launch of the Reconciliation Action Plan. He said many wise things. Peter did, but so, so, so did Nelson Mandela, of course. And Mandela was quoted as, as having said, we needn't feel guilty about the past. We should only feel guilty if we seek to perpetuate the past, which I think is. It's happening. Yeah. Well, it is. It's still it happening. Is. Well, failing to acknowledge it is a form of perpetuation, particularly when you've got structural disadvantage of such, you know, graphic proportions, such, so, right. such extreme proportions. Well, we're just looking at the Northern Territory Bail Act, for example. For young people are going to be put into tension. It's three strikes and you're out. You know, you, you haven't got water security with Aboriginal communities across Australia. They've got contaminated water. E. coli, for example, lives mm. in the water. They don't have uh, Aboriginal water rights across the country. You know, native title is failing us. So I think that those are only some of the issues that we could talk about that have failed. Yeah, and there are, there are just so many. Peter, you spoke uh, on on uh, Thursday of last week at, at the aforementioned uh, ceremony, uh, and your story was really intriguing to me. Uh, so I wonder if, if, if you wouldn't mind um, if we focus for a minute on that. Tell us a bit about your your uh, journey to where you are, because you're an indigenous man. Uh, you're a an astrophysicist, which I think is just an intriguing profession. Very strategic here at the ANU, given uh, Brian Schmidt, the uh, the vice chancellor's uh, interest in that area, a Nobel Prize winner, of course. What what attracted you to astrophysics for a start? Yeah, it was um it was a strange story. So I'm uh, I'm a mature age student. Um, was in my late twenties by the time I started my degree here at ANU, um, and for me it was it was really just a lack of uh, sort of motivation and and sort of um, like I didn't have role models and stuff when I was growing up, so I've always been quite good at maths and stuff like that in school, but I had no reason to apply myself at school, right? Um, and so as such, I sort of just got to the end of year twelve. Got my got my certificate and sort of just went out. Um, just floated off. Where where did you uh, grow up? So I grew up in Mackay in North Queensland, right? Um, which is on Yui Country, right? Um, and uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, country up that way. And um, yeah, so I sort of floated around for quite a few years. Uh, I worked in just about every industry you can think of. Um, I was a tractor driver hauling sugar cane. 
up there. I've uh, been a security guard in a nightclub. Um, yeah, did some tutoring in high schools, doing some math tutoring with young Indigenous uh, students. Um, yeah, I did lots of things. Never really found anything that sort of fit me and eventually got to the point where I run out of unskilled jobs to try, really, that I was interested in trying. And that's what I thought I would just, you know, go to university and maybe did, try and did do you, something. Can I ask you, did you have sort of in the back of your mind through some of those different uh, changes that, you, you know, different jobs you did and so forth, did you have in the back of your mind a, a sort of a sense that there was this great potential, for, uh, you know, to do something else? No, not, a, not at all. Um, in fact, like I didn't do physics or, or any of the sciences in high school. I did maths mm. and I just, I did okay in maths. Um, but yeah, like especially physics, people told me don't do physics, like physics is hard. <laughs> so I was just like, okay, well, I'm not going to do physics. Well, then. the argument worked for me. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and yeah, so it wasn't until I sort of, I actually enrolled in a degree at James Cook University in Townsville. And there it was actually, I did physics for the first time in my life. Um, and it was actually the lecturer of that physics course that actually put me where I am today. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? A good teacher at some point can unlock the, the door to that kind of future. And so you found yourself then, how did you come to ANU? Yeah, well, so yeah, like I said, I was in that physics course mm. uh, and yeah, he was just, he was really passionate about physics, but he was also passionate about his students. And so the more I was doing it, the more I was like, I want to, I want to be like this guy, right? Like I love education. I love, I loved my, my role when I was tutoring kids in high school and stuff like that. And he was actually doing his master's in astronomy and astrophysics at the time. And so I was like, okay, well, I want to be like him. Right. So I want to do astronomy and astrophysics. But they don't offer that at James Cook University. And so I looked up, you know, where are the, the sort of places to go in Australia? And the Australian National University popped up in my Google search. And <laughs> so, it, and it was a funny story. So I actually applied for the ANU the day before applications closed. I got my acceptance two weeks later. And a week after that, I was in Canberra. Wow. So it was about three weeks from learning about the ANU to, to moving to Canberra. And I actually got here. I didn't have anywhere to stay. I stayed in Dixon Backpackers the first night I was here because <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have any plans or anything. I literally just packed my stuff and, and came here and just yeah, – it was, it was sort of the first time where I thought, like, things are just going to work out, right? I, th yeah. I think I finally found my, my place. Yeah, and, and it did, obviously, because I'm, I'm here today. Let's just take a quick break and be back in a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. 
All right, welcome back. Now, we were talking to Peter Swanton just before the break about his his journey. Uh, you graduated then from ANU in 2019, uh, and you now have some other plans to for, for, for a further study here? Yeah, yeah. So I just uh, applied for a Master of Philosophy here at the ANU, uh, and I'm actually going to be doing work on cultural astronomy. And what is um, that? So uh, it's basically we're going to bring a, a scientific lens to traditional um, sky knowledge uh, and actually understand how our culture has been able to use the sky to inform them on things like weather and navigation, um, animals and plants and stuff here on Earth. What are the scientific underpinnings that we now understand with our modern understanding of, of astronomy? Um, were we able to, for tens of thousands of years, do this scientifically? And we're actually now sort of understanding that we've got more than a few hundred years of astronomy knowledge. We've actually got tens of thousands of years of astronomy knowledge, and we're actually just getting a, a bigger and more richer picture of, of astronomy as a whole. Yeah. That's such a great story, isn't it, Virginia? I mean, Well, the- it is great because we, we, we share a lot of the same story, the backstory, but I went to year... Um, what was it 10 and um, I didn't do 11 and 12 and I I was I had a couple of role models but they didn't show me into that wonderful way that you expressed um, going into this incredible area but you know something that we do share in our work is that the same thing I've been trying to do in Indigenous science and water security and, and water issues is to really say to people that we have this incredible knowledge um, for tens of thousands of years, I'd say more than 80,000 years because we can see with the data carbon um, work. But, you know, that is so rich. So I think when we look past just 233 years uh, and we can really show people that actually uh, we're validating your science, you're not validating <laughs> ours, right? And that's my position, yeah. you know. We're, we're actually needed for you to be validated. So I think that fits really great in the narrative of what we do, I think, across universities. Um, and that's why I think Talia's work and, and, and Peter's and my own and many other people across universities are doing fantastically. You know, they're really um, drawing out some of these incredible um, uh, research areas that haven't been done before because we're brave now Mm. and we're ready for it. And I think that's what's exciting. Just before we go to Talia, there's one further thing I wanted to ask you about, and that was language. One of the things you said the other day uh, in, in in your address was about uh, your your own language and how you came to learn it. Can you tell that story? Yeah, so I um, learned Gamilaroi here at the Australian National University as part of my undergrad. So they teach two courses here. Mm. Um, and for me, that was just um, sort of life-changing almost. Um, because as I said in my speech the other day, like it was an opportunity that wasn't uh, afforded my, my mother. Um, so she grew up in a time... My granddad's Italian, so he came over on the boats from Italy. And so for him, especially at that time, it was all about assimilation. Um, and they, you know, he didn't want to do anything to risk him getting deported back to Italy. So he wouldn't teach my mum anything about his Italian heritage, but he also wouldn't let my grandma teach them anything about her um, culture either. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was very much something that was, that was denied to my mum. And so then I learned a lot of it here and I've now sort of gone back and, and I say some of the words and, and phrases that I've learned. And then she goes, oh, I remember 
grandma would say that sometimes at home and stuff like that. So yeah, for me, it was just, it's a really powerful way to, yeah. for me to have connected and, and to help my mum connect with, with our culture and, and history like that. Yeah. I wonder if that's a common story. Um, not obviously in the, in the specific details, but. Uh, it is common. It is common. And language is where our law is embedded. Yeah. And that's what people don't understand. It's not just learning Vietnamese or French or Russian. Our law and who we are and our identity is embedded and a way of in thinking. law. It's and way of thinking. Mm. And that is something that is really unique. And, you know, and Indigenous languages do that. And that's why it's just so important to revive. And I always encourage one of my PhD students to actually do the PhD, but also, yes, do the graduate certificate of, of, of Wiradjuri language, um, because that's going to actually help you, uh, with your work because it's giving you um, your pride in, in your people and it's giving you your identity back. Um, and much the same as what Peter's outlined, I think that's the key. You know, if we actually had that op- open to everyone in university, that they could connect, reconnect, and then it's a spread on then intergenerationally where we actually think as, as younger generations that we're being fed from our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers, um, but we're actually feeding back like Peter said, into his family and his mum and then reconnecting. So it's going everywhere. It's, and it's a it's, chance to, in, in that small way, a small yeah. but significant way to, to undo some of the damage yeah. of, uh, say, you, the experience of your mother being, you said not, she wasn't afforded that opportunity. She was actively denied mm-hmm. it, let's be honest about it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and there is that, that's such a common story. Uh, Talia, how did you wind up here? As you say, you're a, you're a final year psych student. Yeah, What's your so, story? So I moved here from Shell Harbour, which is on the uh, east coast of Australia, um, about 40 minutes south of Wollongong. Um, and I came here. My mum was very active in the University of Wollongong space, and so I wanted a chance to make my own mark and and have my own space to to grow and develop in in the education system, psychology specifically. Um, Unfortunately, at a young age, I lost my brother to suicide um, and that had a really big impact on my family um, naturally. And so I was always uh, interested in understanding, you know, everyone always said there was nothing you could do. And at the time there was not necessarily anything we could do, but actually as I got older, I thought, no, there is things that we can do in the community to prevent and to intervene when people are really feeling, um, but when they are feeling trapped into a corner. And so that was why I decided to come into psychology. I wanted to explore what opportunities there were for community to be able to be involved in that prevention, intervention and, and postvention um, space in terms of suicide. And your experience here at ANU, is it is it what you um, had expected? Is it, uh, is it more diverse, less diverse? Has it been what was in your mind when you came here? When I came here, I I didn't know anyone from Canberra. And so I immediately sort of made contact with the Jabal Centre here. And um, Can you just explain what that is? Yeah, the Jabal Centre is the Indigenous Higher Education Centre for supporting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students at the ANU. Um, I think most universities have um, their own centre and usually um, it's 
the name of the centre is informed by the local language. Um, so here it's the Jabal Centre. Um, so I was able to connect with um, the staff and the students there um, and they've uh, played a big role in helping me understand the education system and the academics and helping support my journey through my degree um, and also provided a space where we're able to get that diversity um, in understanding and knowledge and, and content, whether it's related to your degree or not. Um, it's always really interesting to hear other students' experiences with, with what they're learning as well. You mentioned your mother was uh, very active in, in the higher education system in Wollongong. Do you also have a story like Peter's in the sense of having a, a, a teacher or some number of teachers, for example, that, that were kind of pivotal in, in inspiring you to uh, you know, achieve university degree and go beyond that? Yeah, so I think uh, my mum has been really instrumental in my decision to come to university. Um, she was uh, adopted as a as a child, and she was adopted by a white family, and they're, um, you know, they have been absolutely lovely, and they're they're may not be our biological family, but they are really and truly family um, to us. And they had a big uh, role in teaching her um, her culture, um, which is something that often doesn't happen. Um, so my grandfather, uh, non-biological, was um, a fisherman and he would fish with all the elders on the coast. And when he, when they adopted my mum, they said, look, we've adopted this Aboriginal child and we want her to grow up with culture and we want her to, to know her family and get to know the things, um, to do with her Aboriginality. And so, um, when the time came, they said, look, um, Here's, here's Jody, my mum, and and we want her to teach you to teach her all the things she has to know. And through that, she was able to find uh, through Link Up um, the service to help Aboriginal people, typically a part of the stolen generation, find their families. They were able to help her reconnect with her family and um, sort of reconnect and. She has a, a big long life story where she was able to reconnect and she didn't finish school either. Um, she, I think, went to year 10 and then came back to, as a mature age student um, to do year 11 and 12 and then went on um, to go to university and has actually just finished her uh, submitting her PhD for the Aboriginal continuity of culture on uh, the east coast of Australia. That so. is such an outstanding story. That is really brilliant, very, uh, very encouraging. Yeah. I'm interested in what all of you think about this, uh, the because the, the, obviously the value of role models is quite clear there in, in those stories. Is there a burden also in it, um, uh, you know, in being an, a high achiever? It, do you carry a kind of a, a sense that, you know, you're the, you're the Aboriginal person who, who has to, you know, the go-to Aboriginal person or the person that, you know, must perform in a particular way? Is that, Peter, do you feel that in any sense? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So that was a, a big influence in me actually taking my current role at the Jabal Centre here in a at ANU. So I actually do student recruitment at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm absolutely uh, like one of my favourite mottos that I like to live by is you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. Um, and so for me now being in the position that I am, I do have a responsibility to be visible. 
um, and to hopefully just inspire that that next generation of of indigenous superstars in in academia and and sort of really get us um, into places you know in academia where we traditionally haven't been, mm. but where we absolutely should be. Yeah, Virginia, I've I've seen a number of political leaders, and I think, for example, I'm a, you know quite recent ones, uh, Julia Gillard, Barack Obama, uh, Penny Wong, all for for different reasons, but in a sense, at least in the early parts of their stellar rises, um, want to kind of downplay their particular identity um, so as to not be seen as having got there on that basis or whatever. Affirmative action, you mean? Well, it might be affirmative action um, or just a, just a sort of a, a tendency. Um, uh, Obama, for example, America's first black president, but but there was a sense in which he wanted to downplay that I think earlier on in his presidency than was the case later on. I think there were good political reasons why he wanted to play that down too because race is a big issue in America and race is a big issue in Australia. Hmm. Um, We know that we had a New South Wales government uh, minister the other day saying that there is no race problem in Australia and I think all of us, you know, in our communities would have laughed. Um, Even people who have migrated here know race is a big issue. Well, yeah, that's a very interesting and topical point because the ABC's Australia Talks survey, as as, as we're all seeing reports about that at the moment, uh, there was a story just in the last 24 hours that uh, all the, the findings of the people who were doing that survey that somewhere in the order of 76% of Australians think racism is endemic in Australia, um, that, that, that they know people who make racist jokes, for example, or they experience, have experienced racism themselves or, or seen racist Adam activity. Adam you know, with, well, with the whole debacle of Eddie Maguire uh, seeking not to resign, um, the issue was untenable because of those statements that were made and, and how it's always, as we know as, as practising lawyers, it's, it's how you perceive it. Hmm. It's not the message delivered to you. But it's how you perceive it. How, how, how have you been hurt by that? How have you been undermined by that? How have you, you know, felt deeply saddened and, and traumatized by that? And I don't think a lot of people really understand that, that a lot of these words are powerful. Um, especially when you're growing up as kids, my kids went through the same thing. They had the N word. They had worse than that. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, people, um, would, would understand, you know, both Peter, myself and Talia have heard those words and they're really cruel. And the first thing that, you know, people need to do, white or, or not, is that they need to stop saying, um, what part Aboriginal are you? Mm. Um, I feel like saying, um, you know, something very controversial. Uh, but, but, you know, that's <laughs> Which you were the, just about to say I, and I thought was better and off. I held back in language <laughs> because a lot of people will know what that means. Um, but, you know, I think that's what we really need to have people stop doing. You know, oh, you don't look Aboriginal. Oh, you know, oh, so is it way back in, you know, like 200 years ago? Please stop because it undermines young people. You know, you're Aboriginal and, and that's it. You're Torres Strait Islander. That's yeah. it. I think the other thing is um, people being, uh, as a young kid, being gaslit about what your identity should mean and what other people view your identity as and not even giving you a, sen- a sense or an ability to create your own identity. And, you know, if you didn't answer the question about the one question they asked in class about the Aboriginal people, then, uh, you know, are you really Aboriginal? What do you really know? And uh, what does that say about your identity? And and that um, 
those conversations that I think still happen in, in some schools. And you're the go-to person again. Mm. Yeah, well, I suppose Peter that's what I was sort of getting at, this burden. idea that, yeah, the, the idea that, you know, you're the Aboriginal person in the room, therefore you carry the responsibility to articulate. Or you know. challenge, and that's hard <laughs> when you're a child because a lot of teachers, I can remember, they don't want to be challenged and they and they didn't want to be challenged with my kids either, but mm. they'd get up there, miss, the hand would go up, miss, yeah, yeah, and I want to be heard. That No, you know, we didn't arrive from anywhere. Um, you know, all of your ideas of, of us coming from Southeast Asia, no, wrong. So I think that that's a burden for young people and they shouldn't have to carry that. I think that goes with the whole idea of the other example that we gave with, you know, what part are you, you know, uh, what part of you is Aboriginal? I think that conversation, people really need to reframe that and really think reflectively on it. And I think Reconciliation Day is a time to reflect on it. You know, it's 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 really an important time. It's like Marbo Day. Let's have Marbo Day, you know, because we've got a lot of unfinished business. I know I practice in native title and we've got a long way to go. You know, we've still got to go to court to prove our identity, um, that we have continuity with our laws, the continuity with our country, and that we're still obligated to care for country. But we stand up there and we don't have black judges. Um, rarely do I see a black barrister next to me. Um, I'm one of the few practicing um, Aboriginal solicitors. So, you know, it's like Peter and like Talia. Who else is there in the room with me? Um, and that makes it really hard. So, you know, really encourage, like Peter was saying and Talia, we need to get more people into university from our communities. But remember that when you walk into a remote community, they don't care about your PhD. It's it's how you're culturally <laughs> effective yeah. and how you respect and and really being humble. You know, it's not about your degree. And I've said that a number of times in the presentations I've given at ANU. You know, that's the difference. We do all of these things to get more knowledge, but we're humbled because when we go back to remote communities, that's not that's not the issue. The issue is respect, respecting those elders that have looked after that area for tens of thousands of years and really uh, they're the emeritus professors, you know, and we treat them just like a stakeholder. That's sad. There are many ways in which I think if you took a snapshot of now and compared it with a snapshot of 10 years ago or 20 years before that, um, that, that there's a sense of progress. Uh, we have, we've just had the Indigenous round in the AFL. I don't know. Something else probably happened in another code, but I don't know about other codes. Um, the real football. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking, well, it depends what you're saying. I, I'm an <laughs> AFL's real football. Oh, 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 that came later. Rugby league. <laughs> did it? Did it? No. That's number one. Yeah. I don't mind the round ball game either. Um, yeah. The NBL as well was this weekend. Oh, yes. I'll support yeah, yeah. that. NBL? Yeah, the NBL. <laughs> There's a good game too. Um, but, but so we have those. We have, of course, uh, acknowledgement of country, welcome to country, these sorts of things happening uh, at the start of most uh, public events. Um, there are lots of ways in which uh, Indigenous culture is now at least officially acknowledged and respected. So I, I'm interested in getting a view from each of you as to whether that that represents material progress? Is it a sign of progress as distinct from it, you know, itself being progress or, or is it an illusion of progress, you know, that we're telling ourselves we're moving forward but we're not really, we're, we're dragging the chain? I think for me everyone has a role to play in moving forward and moving together um, and being able to see even the material differences in sports, in music, um, in a range of different fields 
makes a big difference um, because there are so many Aboriginal people in every different field. And so it's important that the changes travel down to to every part of what what is a part of our businesses and our lives. Peter? I guess um like I'd like to sort of talk about this from an astronomy perspective. Excellent. Um, because it's really interesting. So uh, did you know that one of the primary missions of Cook's Endeavour was astronomy related? Um, so that was to track the transit of Venus from the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. Um, and so astronomy has actually had this tie with colonization for hundreds of years as well. Um, and so it as a field doesn't exist in a void um, when it comes to these issues. And it's actually not in a great space. Um, excuse no pun, the pun intended. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, because, yeah, so... Um, yeah, so NASA is actually so Brad Tucker and I yeah, here at the annual actually wrote an article on this for the for the National Museum on astronomy's sort of way of perpetuating colonization because they then they then go and name missions after the endeavor and yeah so it's got this sort of thing of, of perpetuating this and now we're actually you know the big thing at the moment right, is talking about Mars and astronomy is still now throwing around the colonization word. Hmm. And like we we know from from a history here on Earth that colonization has always had someone on the losing side, and so it's arrogant of us to assume that if we were to go to a different celestial body, that there wouldn't be someone or something on the wrong side of that again, right? So even in the field of astronomy, we've got a lot of work to do and a lot of thinking to do in this sort of space. Virginia. Absolutely. Well, I'll just put another analogy out there with biopiracy. Joseph Banks actually started that off um, in 1770 when he took all of our animals and our flora, you know, he just went to town to take everything back to England. So uh, we think that biosecurity is a new problem. Uh, <laughs> we've actually had that introduced too from England. Uh, and I think that's the one issue. Um, I think it's, this is bigger and, and, and greater than what we could have dreamed. You know, looking at the stars, we should have been looking at you know, the Seven Sisters um, it, with our view to being Australia. Um, but now with the, the work that we're all doing, it means that we'll have a different um, a view of not only ourselves, but what is beyond us. And the only thing I'm hoping is that we don't believe that we can just trash Earth um, and then go to Mars and create another trash planet. Mm. Um, that's great work. You know, Elon Musk and other people, Sir Richard Branson was doing work in this in rockets and going to space. But, you know, the whole issue here is let's not trash Earth. Let's keep this environment as beautiful as it is. And, you know, the rate of extinction in Australia is ridiculous of animals and plants. Um, we just need to get a handle on that and think of space as this beautiful thing to, to work towards, but not that we're going to leave it, shut the door, you know, like a tenanted property and then move on to the big house. So I think that that's what I'd like to do, that people really value this incredibly unique planet billions and billions of years to develop from nothing um, and dark matter and all of those other great things that people talk about, um, that's just such a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely, and very uh, sound words to end on. Unfortunately, of course, we've seen the, the Gama Festival uh, for the second year running uh, in Northern Territory cancelled this year as a result of COVID. That's obviously the uh, the dominant uh, 
problem, most urgent problem the world feels like it's facing at the moment. It's dominating our news. So uh, our thoughts go out to all of the people who are associated with trying to um, get that festival up and running, such an important cultural event and a huge amount of work and time and money invested in that. And so that's very sad. I think most people accept that uh, they're, they're the pandemic risk associated with it is so great that it's probably the right decision, but uh, just one of many hardships uh, that are being experienced at the moment. Anyway, look, thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to make a reference again to the pandemic in just a moment, but uh, first to Virginia Marshall, thank you. Managua. Talia, thank you. Talia King. Thank you. And Peter Swanton, great to have you in. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, And as I said, I'm just going to mention the pandemic one more time because I'm going to leave you with something completely different. It's a musical entreaty to get vaccinated. The words are by ANU's James Gigaher, who works in the uh, communications area of the ANU and who's done this on his own time and does not speak for the university in this regard. Uh, And uh, due apologies to John Farnham. I'll leave leave you with this and uh, hopefully it leaves a smile on your face. Mark Kenny signing off for now. We have a chance to turn the tide on COVID. We can save lots of lives, but we gotta get the jab, especially if we're older. Lots of us have daughters. Lots of us have sons. No, yeah, we gotta look for each other. Got a job in the arms. There's a choice we can understand it. We need herd immunity. AstraZeneca, it will still make you better. Lots of us have daughters, lots of us have sons. Oh, yeah, we gotta look for each other. Got a job in the yard. There's a choice we can understand it. We need herd immunity. Lots of us have daughters, 
Lots of us have thoughts. Oh yeah, we gotta look for each other. Got a job in the arm. There's a choice we can understand it. We need herd immunity. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.